Hi, I'm James Rocky, and this is The Lunch Podcast. It's the second half of our coverage from the 2014 Sundance Film Festival as William B. Goss of Film.com, Empire Magazine's U.S. iPad edition, and The Dissolve joins us to talk about the best of the rest of the fest, including this year's awards winners. That's The Lunch Podcast, brought to you by Snoot Films, makers of independent films like The Guest. The Lunch, a podcast about film and a little bit about food, where every week I dine with a creator or critic in the world of film, and then after that meal we record this podcast talking about movies, as well as a few other things. This week we are recording in Park City, Utah, on the closing night of the 2014 Sundance Film Festival. The awards have been handed out, the parties are winding down, final screenings are happening up and down Main Street, and joining me tonight over a glass of bourbon is William Goss. William is a freelancer for outlets including Film.com, Empire Magazine's U.S. iPad edition, The Dissolve, and many more. And you can find him on Twitter at William B. Goss. Hey, well, thanks for joining us. Thank you for uh, having me. <clears throat> you know, the, the great thing about film festivals is that they are like the high school reunion for the AV club. So I get to see you. Normally you're in far-flung Texas. Yes. People like, say, Charlotte Cook from Hot Dogs, who's normally residing in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And it's very much that sort of traveling carnival feeling. And the fact that I can sit down with you and talk about some of the films you've seen and enjoyed or not enjoyed at this year's Sundance Festival is a very rare pleasure. So thank you very kindly for joining the podcast. You're welcome, James. Uh, let's start with Listen Up, Philip, Alex Ross Perry's portrait of an unhappy novelist played by Jason Schwartzman, whose personal life and professional life seem to be imploding at the same time. William, your thoughts on the film? Uh, it's very comparable to Perry's previous film, The Color Wheel, in which it deals in a very lo-fi sensibility and severely unlikable characters. But if you don't allow that to be a hurdle for yourself, I think it's a surprisingly sharp character study about um, almost a sort of a sort of bygone academia, even though it's set in the present day, and sort of the 70s milieu, and having these people who are wittier than they ought to be, but not necessarily as humane as they should be. Jason Schwartzman plays a novelist, Jonathan Price plays his hero and mentor, and like you said, it does feel like a throwback to a literary world, right down to the fact that you often see a lot of a fake books uh, in the film. Yes. And the press notes, for example, have the same font as John's Updike 70s paperbacks. Yes. And when they show you uh, the Jonathan Price character's 80s comeback book, Audit, yes. it's a perfect replica of the first uh, paperbacks for Martin Amos's Money. This is a movie <laughs> that loves its universe, maybe a little more than its characters. Uh, Elizabeth Moss plays Schwartzman's girlfriend, who he loves and yet cannot fully love because he is a horrible, horrible human being, pretty right. much. Um, again, unlikable characters shouldn't be an impediment. Um, the Eric Bogosian narrator provides that touch of authorly omniscience. Mm-hmm. And what I sort of kept thinking of was not just a little bit of whiplash, <laughs> you know, certainly in terms of you know your quest to be the best will cost you, right? and it'll cost you even more if you let it. 
Um, but also a little bit about Barton Fink, in that I just get, kept expecting Jason Schwartzman's character to crack and start screaming, I'll show you the life of the mind. Uh, he refuses to go on a book tour. He refuses to do anything to help sell his book. Like you said, it's apparently now, but we never see a cell phone. And there's no discussion of anything like Amazon or what have you. It's a very lightly throwback exercise, but at the same time, again, as I said about Whiplash, the, uh, perhaps the most admirable thing about it is the refusal of constraint or compromise. The fact that it goes as far as it does with these characters is really what makes it worthwhile. Right. I believe that you know it's not enough that Schwartzman and Jonathan Price are, are playing assholes, but that they are particularly good at it, and it's just fun to watch them go at it, even as they're scratching each other's backs or scratching at anyone who comes their way. Um, and I also feel like it's kind of what I might have wanted out of Noah Baumbach's movies of late before Francis Ha. It's kind of the movie I would have hoped Greenberg might be, where it's sort of tolerably toxic, if that makes any sense. Where, Or rather, where their toxicity has a point. Right. I, I can watch a film about a horrible human being. I mean, for example, Ex Drummer. I don't know if you saw that. I missed it. Goodness gracious, that's a horrible human being. But again, my whole thesis about rough films is that a roughness is just the wrapping paper. What matters is what's inside. Yeah. And with enough character portraiture and legitimate discussion of these characters inside Listen Up, Philip, to make the difficult ride worth it. I think so. Yeah. Uh, somebody did call Listen Up, Philip, the best Woody Allen, Noah Baumbach, non-Woody Allen, Noah Baumbach film of the festival so far. It's up there. <laughs> uh, also, uh, w- uh, switching gears completely, but also about an author, Cooties, featuring Elijah <laughs> Wood as a would-be author who goes back to substitute teaching in his hometown of Fort Chicken. And, yes. Will, would you care to finish up what happens next? Well, he takes up a substitute teaching gig at his former elementary school and finds himself dealing with an outbreak of what the kids consider cooties, but really seems to be a rabid zombie infection that's spreading among the children whom the teachers have to fight off. And there's a lot of pleasure in this, not just in watching fully grown people kick kids in the face. And and also, I like it when a zombie film has, uh, or actually any genre film, alters its pseudoscience in a way that makes a plot more intriguing with a perfectly legitimate biomedical explanation for why fully grown adults aren't affected by this virus unleashed by a bad chicken nugget. Mm-hmm. And once I got that, I was like, fine, I'm in. It's yeah. a very funny ensemble of actors, would you not say? No, I think it's, I mean, you're looking at Elijah Wood, uh, Allison Pill, Rain Wilson, uh, surprisingly, I would say the MVP is Lee Whannell, otherwise known as the screenwriter behind uh, Insidi- the Insidious films and uh, other James Wan joints. But um, uh, uh, oh, Nassim Pardad from uh, Saturday Night Live, Jack McBrayer, Jack McBrayer, uh, a lot of, and also George uh, uh, Garcia, aka Hurley from Lost, right. as a uh, crossing guard with an affection for psychobilin mushrooms. Yes, uh, I liked this bunches. I Felt like, though, in the third act, as the action goes out of the school, no spoilers, I don't yeah. think that's too big to admit, but I felt like the, the pressurized setting of the film had been popped and a little bit of the fizz went out of it. See, for me, it was in the second act when they sort of proceed with a standard-issue love triangle and try to aim for sincerity in a film that's otherwise very good at being irreverent, uh, but it's still fairly enjoyable. I just think that once you get past the kid angle, it's kind of a standard-issue zombie movie just set in a school. Yes, I mean, in the whole thing, uh, but Elijah Wood is great as an unlikely unhero in this. I'm not going to say anti-hero. Right. I will say unhero, who can't 
stop telling people about his book and his ambitions and what have you. And I must say that the tentative titles for his would-be manuscript rival the fake book covers and listen up, Philip, for things I really want to read. Uh, the other thing that uh, I saw this screening at the mark, and uh, I, I always leave for Q&As when, there are, when I'm writing up the film, but somebody I was with explained to me that, oh, during the Q&A, a teacher stood up and said that she didn't really have a question she just found the film deeply cathartic. <laughs> so, I, I, and it would be, it, so many things go on in the world of education these days, from school shootings to questions of appropriateness and what have you, that I felt like the metaphor of it all was a bit unexplored, more, more set dressing than simile. Right. At the same time, I had fun, and I laughed, and Lionsgate picked it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll be able to see it in a theater near you. This is like ideal midnight viewing, right? When you're... Not quite picky, maybe you're of a draft house, maybe you've had a few drinks. Or on VOD with some friends, I believe. Yes, yes, I feel like you could probably turn this film to its own drinking game relatively swiftly. Yes. <laughs> Drink when Elijah would look scared, fall into a coma. Done. Done. Uh, one of the other films that you and I both have a chance to see for a very real departure is Love is Strange. Do you want to give us a crazy on this one, William? Uh, Al- uh, Alfred Molina. And John Lithgow play an older New York City gay couple who have recently been married after 39 years together, only to discover that said marriage has caused Alfred Molina to lose his job at a Christian academy, and therefore they must deal with the dilemma of not being able to afford their apartment and leaning perhaps too heavily on their family and friends for help. Uh, I was joking that you could call this film The Rent is Too Damn High, a love story. Uh, And all kidding aside... I love it when films deal with socioeconomic reality, when films deal with brokerage fees, bills to pay, interest. I feel like most of us live in a world where these things matter, and they so rarely do in film. Uh, The director is Ira Sachs, who also co-wrote, and I think the number one reason to see this film is because of the amazing performance from Melina and Lithgow. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really believable, very real relationship, as, as... complicated as it is strong and and truly appreciable yeah and i feel like the tensions as you said arise from a real place and the extent to which they blow up isn't even the kind of histrionics we're used to in any sort of issue film and something i tweeted tonight was i said it was a a remarkably moving love story gay or otherwise and i was initially taken to task for making that exception but i feel like part of the film's strength is that it's not just about the love from them but the love they shared show to others the love that is perhaps exhausted by them from others. Their big family. Yeah. I, I'm, I, you know, when I wrote it up, I said, I mean, this is a great love story regardless of mere modifiers. Yeah. You know, it, I, it's rare to see a love story where you buy the characters so completely and buy them as a functional, challenging, mature relationship. There's a conversation late in the film where the two of them exchange, you know, their concepts of infidelity or fidelity. <laughs> and the difference between the two sounds real and sounds like something was figured out a long time ago and not necessarily easily and here we are. Um, I had one minor objection to Love is Strange, which is that, uh, you know, there's an old Italian proverb of house guests and fish both start to stink after three days, and at no point do any of the characters say, you've been sleeping on our couch for two days, two weeks, two months. I didn't get a sense of a time clock in the film. Which, I think, if you were crashing on somebody's couch, would be on your and their mind all the time, and certainly pertinent information. Or am I being picayune? I don't know. I felt like you had the same issue with 12 Years a Slave, and I think part of it is the idea that it is an indefinite issue for them to grapple with, not just 
where they're going to move, but how they're going to move on when certain other dilemmas arise, and whether or not it's going to taint their relationships from now on with their family members and friends. Right. I just think, I just feel like, you know, I have a sense that having, you know, John Lithgow crash with your, your son can't be especially fun for Marissa Tomei. Right. I would just appreciate, you know, uh, the x-axis of discomfort and a y-axis of time. Now let me fix that point more precisely. Every day she tears off a calendar day. No, but I mean, if you had somebody staying with you for entirely too long, at right. some point you would, could legitimately say, you've been here for two months, and that wouldn't feel like exposition. It would feel like frustration. Right. But I feel like it plays as frustration regardless. Right. And that's very true. This is a minor nitpick. It was yes. a really beautiful, nice film. Uh, I was uh, watching, and I was reminded of one of my favorite lines in all of literature from the author Carol Shields, who said that uh, love is a republic, not a kingdom. All of us are eligible for its favors, but subject to its laws. Right. And the, the love is strange is a really, really beautiful trip into a republic of love for these two characters. I agree entirely. Uh, a completely separate matter, uh, going from one New York love story to another, they came together, the Friday Night Closer, already being released by Lionsgate. It's a parody of New York-based romantic comedy starring Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler, directed by David, David Wayne, and written by David Wayne and Michael Showalter, who previously made The Baxter, Wet Hot American Summer, and uh, Role Models? Yes. He at least directed it. Yes, he at least directed it, so we'll leave it at that. William, your take. Uh, I enjoyed this quite a bit, and I say this as a huge Wet Hot fan, uh, and also of role models. I feel like I like David Wayne's very knowing and sometimes eagerly absurd sensibilities. And although I feel like that early on this takes a sort of obvious tack of being of having characters acknowledge that this is very much like a movie, as opposed to just playing it as almost this ultimate fake rom-com, uh, I still feel like there's a lot a lot of mileage they get out of acknowledging these really hoary cliches that still are perpetuated to this day by a studio system that otherwise seems indifferent about genuine emotion. I always, you know, I always say that when I'm watching a big studio romantic comedy, they invariably have a montage, and everybody's hopping around to like a Gin Blossom song, and like, I have a carnival, or having dinner, and I always think, I would much rather hear what these jerks are actually saying to each other and watch them like Malik twirl around to the tune of Till I Hear It From You. And this movie has a montage sequence like that yes. that does a great segue. There are jokes in it, you know, that are very, very smart and very stupid at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a piece of reunion sex between Paul Rudd and his ex, Kobe Smulders, that involves very vigorous uh, gyrations and actions performed by the Pilobus Dance Company. So when you hire one of New York's best dance companies, do your mock humping. That's precisely my kind of stupid. It's a part. rather gymnastic feat. <laughs> rather gymnastic feat. Uh, also, the other great thing I thought about this film is that it does not outstay its welcome. It's no. a fleet. Jeepers. 80, 80, 83 minutes. 83 minutes. Get in, get out, get on with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, there are gags there that Zucker Abrams and Zucker would have made, but there's also very smart meta stuff, too. Yes. Everything right down to the coworker who likes bow ties, the corporate nemesis with blonde bangs. Uh, Amy Poehler's African-American co-worker, best friend, who is otherwise utterly irrelevant to the film. Right. Uh, I have a chance to speak with Mr. Wayne this morning, and I noted, you know, demolition does not require knowledge, but deconstruction does. Where you take every piece apart to show where it's gone wrong, you have to know how to put it together. This could very well have been a slightly Tony or Friedberg seltzer joint, and yet it is not. Uh, it's surprisingly 
I wouldn't say past due, but it seems to have its sights specifically on the Nora Ephron Meg Ryan vehicles. Clearly, You've Got Mail was an inspiration for the central plot in which Paul Rudd's character works for this candy conglomerate, if you can imagine such a one. And he is out to put Amy Poehler's Upper Sweet Side Candy Shop out of business, a place so sweet that they would donate all their proceeds to charity were she not just giving all the candy away. But I feel like it's still amusing because it's all very knowing and again the type of gags vary from sight gags to just this uh, inanely literal interpretation of otherwise stock tropes and lines uh there's a moment where uh paul rod and amy poehler go to her flat and her older sister is there and her older sister is dressed in exactly the kind of plaid shirt that bonnie hunt wore and jerry Maguire, with exactly the same pained expression and the exact same shade of eyebrow and i went okay somebody here is good uh, if you like the sound of this, you may also enjoy The Baxter, a really unexamined film from those two, essentially, which is about a romantic comedy trope of the guy who gets left when the true couple of a film fall in love. And Michael Showalter plays the Baxter who gets left by Elizabeth Banks in that film. It, again, it's very knowing about its tropes. It features Peter Dinklage. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and again... In, out, 83 minutes. I like that. Very little <laughs> fat on it. For a darker kind of comedy, William, why don't you tell the people out in podcast land about uh, Mahjan Satrapi's new film, The Voices? Yes, one of the, uh, I would say, unpleasant... I, I don't know, that seems sort of backhanded, but I very much enjoyed this tremendously dark comedy about a factory worker played by Ryan Reynolds with an exceptionally positive disposition who tries to go out with a colleague played by Gemma Arterton and ends up having to uh, cover up his tracks with the guidance of his cat and his dog, who each speak to him with no apparent uh, restraint. Uh, Bosco, the dog, is, of course, a true dog. When people come to the door, he's like, Intruder! I got him! I got him! And the cat, Mr. Whiskers, has a uh, rough, profane Scottish brogue on the level of Malcolm Lowry in, in the loop. Um, the number one thing I really enjoyed about this film was the fact that it's kind of a masterclass in color and composition. Right. Uh, Satrapi, of course, started her career as an illustrator. She uh, wrote and drew the best-selling Persepolis and created that film as well. And there are scenes in this that are so lovely and so well-composed, you almost forget about the severed heads. Well, initially your guard goes up because you see this perky perfect town of Milton has its own giddy theme song when we when we are introduced to it and you have to wonder if it's just going to be one of those horribly twee indies that we tend to come across here and then when you what you realize what the reality is when he begins to take his medication and the reason he tries to abstain from it you start to realize how carefully candy colored and and perfect the world in his mind is and it really threads the needle in a particular way for a movie that otherwise could be and maybe for some people glib and tacky and I think also the biggest component for me is Ryan, Ryan Reynolds' performance. Ryan Reynolds is one of those guys, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, a lot of promotion for promotion's sake in Hollywood. I, you've done a couple of good films. Let's put you in some spandex and make you stand out in front of $200 million. And, you know, Mr. Reynolds is great as garnish. He's terrific in, like, Blade Three. He just can't carry Green Lantern, although no one could. Uh, you know, he certainly read and agreed to be in Turbo, but I'm not sure if that was the best call. And in this, he works with the cast well. He gives a really great performance that utilizes natural charisma. A friend of mine dismissed the Amityville horror remake by saying, boy, Ryan Reynolds can't even act crazy. <laughs> and in this film, Ryan Reynolds can. And like you said, 
the fact that when his character briefly goes on his meds uh, under the uh, guidance of patient, kindly psychiatrist Jackie Weaver, we briefly see what his life actually looks like when he quits taking them and then his life snaps back to being clean, bright, warmly lit. And you get, oh, all of this is from his perception. Now I am on board. Um, if Anna Kendrick is also in the film. It's a great set of performances. And uh, again, I think I dug it more from a filmmaking technique than from a story. There's also this really weird thing where I felt like a lot of the subplot with Ms. Kendrick and Mr. Reynolds was kind of drawn directly from Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, a.k.a. Michael Mann's Manhunter. The Joan Allen character in that film, you know, the woman who, who calls for a guy who accidentally has a freak inside. It felt very, very well played and nicely done. Agreed. <laughs> I just, Where's the one we're split on, James? I don't know yet, William. Uh, oh, let's talk about uh, The Obvious Child. Okay. Uh, After you. Well, I will specify that The Obvious Child is a short that is at the festival at the same time as a feature called simply Obvious Child. You're right. An Obvious Child is a feature starring Jenny Slate. Yes. An Obvious Child, the song, makes an appearance in that and the Zach Braff film, but I digress. Obvious Child stars Jenny Slate as a Brooklyn comedian, comedian, uh, very much in the vein of Sarah Silverman, very foul-mouthed and very proud of her Jewish heritage who realizes that after a one-night stand, she has been knocked up and decides pretty firmly to get an abortion. And it almost plays as a knocked-up inverse, where this character has to grapple with maybe growing up a little and has to decide how to break it to her her fleeting flame and uh, come to terms with it. And the strange thing is, I feel like I was bothered by how generic this sounded for me, how it played out, to the extent that I was taking for granted that this is an abortion comedy, that seemed to be its label going into the festival, and for me, I just thought, for such a taboo topic, the film takes it kind of matter-of-factly, which is, and to some extent, admirable, but for me, not necessarily hilarious. There's a couple of good jokes around it, but at the same time, when Ms. Slate's character is in the clinic on the table, and you watch her eyes well up with tears that roll down her face onto the tile floor, you certainly feel that... What I found intriguing was, it's a very strong film, it's much more of a writing showcase and a performance showcase than a directing one. I will note that Ms. Uh, Slate is capable of playing a worse stand-up than she actually is, which right. is a fairly deft trick. And also that as taboo as it is, and as uh, real as it is to have a would-be comedian in Williamsburg talking about this. I kept on longing for a version of a film that took place in Nebraska where she didn't have well-to-do parents right. and had less options. It felt a little friction-free, much in the same way that Juno did, mm -hmm. albeit with a completely different iteration. But it did feel like a, a predetermined plot point was, it was being moved towards on rails. Right. Even the point where her would-be boyfriend arrives at the same time that she's going out with David Cross and he just assumes, oh, you must be breaking up with me. It's that same sort of second act turn where it's like someone assumes the worst, overhears a conversation, and I just feel like those kind of beats were a bit too routine for my liking. But as a, uh, almost more as a Jenny Slate showcase, I'd like to see her in more films as a departure from her SNL work. Uh, and also she's terrific on uh, Parks and Recreation as a John Ralphio's That's horrible, right. <laughs> horrible cousin, Mona Lisa. Um, and, you know, it was I, I sort of had a back-to-back -back thing of Obvious Child, which is about, uh, you know, Jenny Slate's character is, a do is the daughter of divorced parents 
the mother as well to do the father Richard kind the Jim Henson-esque Muppeteer and then I saw Dear White People which is very interesting about race and identity and conflict but also takes place at a private Ivy League school and you know I live in America I like unexamining privilege as much as the next person but I just felt that like both those films could have banged against the glass of their fishbowls a little bit more is that, could that be the clumsiest metaphor ever? Perhaps. <laughs> wow. Okay. Good to know. I'm just wondering if you uh, were able to fill your Brooklyn set indie punch card, uh, and if you if you do, I believe Lena Dunham comes to your door and cries on your kale. I was playing Brooklyn Bingo. Are the characters sitting on a stoop? Papunk. Mm-hmm. Are they wearing stupid knit hats? Papunk. Are their apartments larger than they logically should be? Papunk. <laughs> yeah, I got I got close to a full card with Sundance. Um, and one of the other films that we both saw was Locke. Yes. Yes. Featuring Tom Hardy and Tom Hardy alone in a car for roughly real time, 90 minutes, as he drives off to attend to the woman he knocked up, I guess in a, in a strange tie-in back to Obvious Child, uh, some months before, and having to deal with the fact that he's abandoning a massive concrete job, as is his occupation, the following morning, and also trying to break the news to his family that he is not going to abandon the one that he has unwittingly started. Uh, and again, Mr. Hardy is certainly a magnetic actor. This was uh, written and directed by a gentleman who wrote uh, Dirty Little Things and mm-hmm. Eastern Promises, Stephen Knight. Um, and those movies take place in the world so much that spending an entire film in Tom Hardy's BMW felt a little bit claustrophobic. A little bit. Um, and then, well, I mean... I have a sister who's a civil engineer, and uh, one fact about concrete is that there's also a great New Yorker piece about this, about the problems of getting concrete into Manhattan, because you can't have concrete sit in a concrete mixer for more than 60 to 90 minutes, or it just won't work. It'll either seize up, or it'll fall apart. Right. And his character has to do the biggest concrete pour in Europe the next morning, and he's yelling at his underling and he, while he's juggling calls and trying to deal with his wife. I mean, did you did you find the conversations compelling enough? I did, and while you're you have to acknowledge the inherent staginess of the premise, and I don't feel like the film gets around it terribly well visually. I feel like it's really hard in thirty minutes in not to wish that the reflections of passing streetlights and motorists would just go away. But I feel like he carries it so well, and the voice performers, such as Olivia Coleman, who come in to supplement him, are equally carrying their weight. And for me, it was enough to make it a compelling exercise in theatricality, if not cinema. Uh, you know, I'll allow it. And again, it's very easy to watch Mr. Hardy. What's great is that his, uh, his underling on the concrete pour, who's now being tasked with all the jobs, I only recognize this after the fact, the same actor who plays Moriarty on the new BBC Sherlock. And really gives a great vocal performance where it's like utterly distinct from that character but still really enjoyable as somebody in deep uh, out of his depth. And the closest thing to comic relief the film has to offer on a regular Re- basis. The closest thing the film has to comic relief in a movie that's fairly brutal. Yes. Without showing a single drop of blood. Yes. Uh, and, uh, I, when I was talking with Mas- Matthew Patches afterwards he said it felt very Pinteresque and I said glibly yeah, it's Pinter via Bluetooth. Right. Uh, but it is. He's just in the car and you're in there with him. Aside from when he's monologuing to the spirit of his absent dad. Yeah, that's a bit of a stretch, but if anyone can pull it off, I believe Tom Hardy can. Because if I say that he can't, he will come and punch me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you think your opinion gives you power over me. <laughs> no. 
Um, speaking of which, did you see the skeleton twins? I did not. Uh, there, there's a certain, people always say there are certain themes at Sundance this year, and I always think, you know, 150 movies, you're going to find some connective points between them, whether you want to or not. Right. But there's a lot of, you know, the child is father to the grown-up stuff and the skeleton twins as well with fairly rough resolution at the same time. Hmm. But at the same time, you know, parental issues aren't a theme at this year's Sundance. They're a theme at every year's Sundance. Yeah. You're listening to The Lunch Podcast, and we're, of course, talking with William Goss of Film.com, the Empire Magazine, U.S. iPad edition, and The Dissolve. Uh, the other thing about Sundance is that you, you come and you see as many films as possible, and you still leave with a list of things you want to see. Can we briefly talk about your want-to-see list and why? Um, I had hoped to catch up with Calvary, which is the new film by John Michael McDonough, Martin McDonough's brother. Um, and apparently it's a more dramatic turn from The Guard, starring Brendan Gleeson as, I believe, a priest. And I don't know much beyond that, other than people being very struck by it. Uh, it did get picked up for distribution, and I, I really liked The Guard. I, I, there's a, the opening sequence of The Guard made me laugh like a morbid hyena when I saw it at Sundance. It's very good stuff. And I like Mr. You know, Mr. John, John Michael McDonough is the uh, brother of Martin McDonough. Martin McDonough? Mm -hmm. The director of a playwright and director of In Bruges. And uh, clearly a, a, a taste for dark stuff runs in the family. Yes. I wish I'd seen Only Lovers Left Alive, which I'm now beginning to miss at multiple festivals. The new Jim Jarmusch chatty vampire flick starring Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. But I know that will be released by Sony Classics this April. And I hope to catch up with that potential midnight favorite then uh, my whole thing this festival around was finally seeing blue ruin after missing it at con toronto afi and finally seeing it now it's, it's the whole thing of the film festival circuit is slightly like accelerated time in that you think oh my god i'm so behind and it's still a year before that movie will appear in the theater yeah, yeah. it's a uh, it's that, that sort of hyper accelerated fast forwardedness I've got to say that Blue Ruin, is, I've seen it twice now, and it's easily an early favorite for this year for me, and I was wondering what your thoughts on it were. Uh, Blue Ruin is uh, directed by Jeremy Saulnier, uh, featuring Macon Blair as a man who we first meet sleeping rough in an old, rusted-out blue car, so beaten up you almost don't notice the bullet holes in it. A policeman comes and finds him and says, I just wanted you to know they're letting him out. And then soon we learn who him is and what his relationship is to uh, Macon Blair's character Dwight and it's this very incompetent revenge film about the you know you know the old saying when you set out on a journey of revenge best dig two graves Dwight can't even afford a shovel no he's, uh, he's you know it's like he's hobo without a shotgun to be entirely <laughs> too glib but just so much is conveyed in the character, in the eyes. Yeah. Macon Blair doesn't speak for the first 25 minutes. And there's a great moment when he's reunited with his sister and he pauses and he says, I I'm sorry, I, just, I haven't talked to anybody for this long in a really long time. Yeah. And you buy him. It's a really well-made film, beautifully shot. Yeah. yeah. Conveys a lot with sim just visual simplicity. Blair's terrific. It's a big step up from his, from Solyanay's. Solonay's uh, previous film, uh, Murder Party, right. which also starred Mr. Blair. Uh, but it's the fact that it's equally tragic and has a certain melancholy to it, darkly funny in these brilliant ways, and then also very tense because there are these schemes that he seems to implement that look like they're going to work and then backfire in tremendous fashion. Uh, you know, I, 
you get to talk to people in this business, and if you're really smart, you just shut up and listen. And one of the things I want I have a chance to speak to Mr. Soderbergh uh, on twice in the magical year of side effects and Haywire. And he said, you know, the one thing I like about Haywire is that it does something movies can do but don't do a lot, which is it's silent. You know, that, you know, one of the things that discerns movies from TV is that storytelling in film can be silent, and that works remarkably well. And on TV, it just makes people go, oh, I'm flipping over to Duck Dynasty. Yeah. And a lot of Blue Ruin is done in silence, and I really like that. Yeah. And that comes out this April, thanks to Radius. Thanks to Radius. Uh, what else did you not catch if you really wanted to? I did not see Happy Christmas, which is Joe Swanberg's follow-up to Drinking Buddies and apparently continues that sort of mild renaissance in his career with uh, real movie stars and apparently actual narratives. Uh, I don't know much about it other than Lena Dunham and uh, Anna Kendrick starring, as well as Melanie Linsky, also in They Came Together, who I'm happy to see in anything. I'm happy to see Ms. Linsky in anything as well. Uh, my big misses would have to include the Overnighters, about a network of social support created by a church for local fracking and oil workers. Amy Nicholson of LA Weekly said, quote unquote, dude, you have to see it, so just go, <laughs> just go, don't know. Uh, also on my list is the Zellner Brothers' Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, which a lot of people have praised for its formal invention, and which you were able to see, William. Yes, Please. I was uh, very much a fan of it. I've long been familiar with the Zellner's work, and while I feel like their shorts sustain themselves better than their features, I feel like Kamiko is a significant step up for them in terms of the way it looks, the way it sounds, and, and, and in fact, the band The Octopus Project won a special jury award tonight for their score. For, for those of us who, who weren't in Park City, can you give us a brief pricey, William? Yes, uh, it is as much a true story as Fargo was, and that an urban legend concerning a Japanese tourist dying in the wilds of Minnesota has been assumed that she was out looking for the money that Steve Buscemi buries in Fargo, which is itself presented as a fake true story. <laughs> so it's not necessarily as comedic and wildly meta as it sounds. There's a certain current undercurrent of melancholy, but there's also a lot of dry, deadpan humor that is very much welcome. And Rinko Kikuchi, who is in nearly every frame of this movie, carries it significantly well with sparsely spoken Japanese and then eventually broken English. Rinko Kikuchi, uh, folks will most likely know probably from Brothers Bloom, where mm -hmm. she played Bang Bang. Uh, the Zellner brothers are uh, David and Nathan. They're Austin-based filmmakers. Their film, Goliath, about a divorcee and his cat, is really terrific. And Kid Thing, about a young girl who, while walking out in the woods, finds an older woman who's fallen down a well and needs help, but not as much as the young girl needs diversion, is a movie that, as you said, may not have the coherency of their shorts, but also has really great, strange things to say. Yeah, I feel like this has a more pronounced fractured fairy tale feel and right. the fact that Alexander Payne signed on as executive producer I think speaks to its sort of skewed take on the Midwest where it's not exactly pandering with the same sort of Don Quixote sort of story of someone who's looking to find something that we know they're not going to necessarily locate but might be better than the alternative of the harsh realities of the world. Uh, the, the whole th I, I feel like it has that thing in common with Payne which is that Placed on the flat expanses of the American heartland, all behavior looks somewhat more extreme. Right. Uh, uh, I was amused because there were audience members who were clearly uh, upset whenever the character went outside underdressed and unfit for the Minnesota cold, that they were immediately fearing for her life. I right. just found that amusing. 
Uh, and again, if people lean forward and go, oh no, that means it's working. Right. Can I briefly digress? I, it's weird because when you're at Sundance, you have certain degrees of expectations. It's sort of like, you know, the whole thing of Anton Chekhov saying, if you have a gun on the wall in the first act, it should go off by the third. Yes. And during Richard Linklater's Boyhood, there were two separate scenes where I found myself extrapolating the indie film version of those scenes where they end in dismemberment and brutal terror yes. and blood on the floor. And both times when it didn't happen, I thought, okay, Linklater, now you're just messing with us. No, I felt like there was one in particular that I know you're thinking of that I think is ingenious because you could hear everyone get antsy and then you could hear the laughs and sighs of relief when they realized, oh, you're right, this is supposed to be like a natural order of things and not necessarily this sort of Sundance indie where suddenly 60 minutes in a bunch of teens have to bury a body. You know, and it was weird because I, I, it's even, a, you know, ostensibly Sundance is a revolution, but it's 30 years old now. It's gone from sex, lies, and videotape to hugs, honesty, and baby monitors, you know. Um, and I feel like even then, you know, this place generates its own set of tropes mm -hmm. and cliches and negative expectations. Right. And, uh, and seeing those thwarted slash subverted was really, really nice. Right. Uh, there is, of course, the old joke that Sundance spelled backwards is massive depression. Did you have anything uh, totally bum you out this year? Um, surprisingly, no. Films like Kamiko find this really good balance between taking potentially bleak subject matter and infusing them with a sort of not just humor but humanity and, uh, of course, a, a formal beauty that I find engaging enough to offset that sort of uh, so-called uh, poverty porn that tends to crop up at these and other festivals. Uh, it was the whole thing of, I don't know if I would want to have dinner with Jason Schwartzman's author in Listen Up, Philip, but I'll watch him and I'll right. laugh and I will find the humor in realism. Right. Uh, anything else on your I Must See list? Um, I was very curious about the one I love, mostly because of how people were talking about it in such hushed but uh, enthusiastic tones. Uh, just to fill people in, I, very, I saw this film and very much enjoyed it. Uh, Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men and Mark Duplass from A Puppy Chair and The League uh, are a couple who are clearly relatively newly married, but married long enough to have their problems and are with their therapist, Ted Danson, and he eventually says, look, I know this place, you can get away, you can go away, it's kind of this fantasy retreat, you can enjoy it, you'll come back feeling a lot better, it's worked for all of my clients. And they go. And it is, and a series of things happen which neither they nor we expect. And again, much like Blind, this is a film where I was watching it going, so what's going to happen? With Blind, I thought, is this a thriller? Is this a coping with disability story? Is it a marriage drama? And the one I love shifts like that as well, where you're not quite sure exactly about what it's going to do. Um, the one thing I will say, and again, you can see this film, and I will not reveal too much of its depth, but the one thing I liked about it was its understanding of long-term relationships between two people. They all eventually turn into love triangles, where it's you, your partner, and the version of you, the better version of you, your partner knows you're capable of being. Right. And that very specific expansion of not expansion, but discussion of potential versus realism. You know, what could be versus what is. Desiring versus just dealing. Right. Uh, really works well in the film. And for a first film, it's incredibly technically adroit. It's a 
practically put together, and both Miss Moss and Mr. Duplass are really terrific in it and utterly believable throughout some very tricky stuff. Cool. It's funny how much of what you've said reminds me of what I like so much about Blind, which I know you're a big fan of, and that I went in knowing nothing but the pedigree of the filmmakers and had assumed, well, we're watching this blind woman relate a story to us. This is going to be either a mopey disability story or an intersecting lives drama and all these things that you just sort of assume because you've seen so many poorer versions of them. And part of the reason that blind works so well is it takes an uncommon situation to extrapolate universal concerns about what we hope or fear our relationships might be when we're not around. Uh, uh, The one I love is terrific. Radius picked it up. You'll be able to see it. It's one of those films where the joke is that the commercial should just be Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss going, look, you like us. See this movie. Don't ask. Don't push. What's it about? It's about us. You like us. Just go. Again, I really like this film, but I wouldn't wish the task of selling it on right. somebody I didn't like. The or same. rather, selling it without, you know, as Mark Twain said, you know, analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. When you do it, you learn a lot that the frog dies. Right. I feel like this film could very easily be dissected to death. Uh, anything else on your I'd like to see list? Uh, as you said, the overnighters. I feel like I've done a, a, a lamentable job of keeping up with documentaries this year, uh, but I believe that we will address the award winners and know which ones to keep on our radar. Which is a very deft segue because the awards were announced literally a few hours ago. You're listening to this a little bit later in the week, uh, but trust me, the news didn't quite rush down from the hillsides here in Park City. Uh, I'm just going to go through winners very quickly, and then we can talk about them. The winner of a dramatic U.S. Grand Jury Prize was Whiplash, which also won the Audience Award for Dramatics. Uh, The documentary U.S. Grand Jury Prize went to Rich Hill. The World Cinema Grand Jury Prize went to To Kill a Man. Uh, And the World uh, Cinema Grand Jury Prize went to Return to Hongs. That was for documentary To Kill a Man narrative. For documentary To Kill a Man narrative, quite right. The Audience Award for Documentary went to Alive Inside. The Audience Award for World Cinema went to Defret. The Audience Award for World Documentary went to The Green Prince. And the Audience Award in the next section went to Imperial Green. Yes. Uh, the next section is actually one of my favorite things at Sundance. It's one of our newer additions because it's sort of, we're looking for experimental filmmakers and bold, new, uncompromising visions, bracket with a budget of less than. Yeah, And I feel like, you know, in an era of Zach Braff Kickstarters and films, you know, we came together. It's already been picked up a Lionsgate. A Sundance premiere is just part of its marketing strategy, despite it being a lovely film. Right. But, you know, it's one of those movies about as independent as a kitten on a ventilator. And I really feel like the next showcase, which gave us movies like Blue Caprice and... Uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild? N- I don't no? think Beasts was next, but I do think that... Uh, Cars. Bellflower. <laughs> Crazy car is how I remember Bellflower. We're all very tired here, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Bellflower was in the next. And much like I find the Cassavetes nominees at the Independent Spirit Awards are often more interesting than the quote-unquote nominees, right. next is a great selection. And seeing uh, Imperial Dreams, which somebody called the moral choice version of Boys in the Hood, starring John Bogea from Attack the Block, uh, I, I'd be very interested in seeing that. It was great to see... Sundance recognizing that as its experienced mission drift 
right. trying to recorrect itself. Um, Whiplash, big audience pleaser. Yeah. Yes. And you saw it and enjoyed it. Yeah, I saw it opening night, and as others said, kind of broke the trend of usually reliably mediocre opening night selections. Uh, also, it's very rare for an opening night film to be in competition, quite frankly. Right. Yeah, that's statistically uh, anomalous. But one thing I'll note about Whiplash is that Roger Ebert had a great line about the end of Rounders, where he said, we're supposed to cheer at it, but it's roughly the equivalent of somebody, an alcoholic, walking into a liquor store triumphant and coming out with a handle of vodka over their head. Yeah. Uh, Whiplash has a big, rousing ending. I'm just not sure if it's good for the characters. No, but I felt it was good for the film, because at that point I was worried about how monotonous and maybe anticlimactic the film would be. And I feel like the last 15 minutes put the put the most unlikely smile on my face just watching these characters go at it in a way that's only very particular to their circumstances but very satisfying to watch unfold yeah really well really really well put together uh, I did uh, not have a chance to see alive inside I did you see Valentine Road last year no but I heard it was very powerful uh, see the thing is that Valentine Road is a documentary about a school shooting a school shooting that happened in Oxnard California a young boy who felt like he was becoming transgendered or becoming transsexual and would wear dresses to school and told another boy that, you know, I'd like you to be my Valentine, and then he got shot for the trouble of it. And it's a very tragic story, but I was watching the documentary going, yes, the story is tragic, but it's as tragic as it is incomplete. And I found myself asking all these factual questions I felt like I shouldn't have to ask of a movie that was less concerned with how to fit in Macklemore's same love over the closing credits. I tend to find, you know, the, the, I, I have no objection to a documentary that works my heartstrings, but there are other instruments in the orchestra of my appreciation. And Alive Inside, about using music as part of therapy for Alzheimer's patients, I just saw a few stills from it and I thought, this doesn't look especially well shot. And that sounds grotesquely presumptuous on my right. part. But it also feels true. I've not, I've, would you say there's been a fair trend recently that the digital revolution has given us a bunch of documentaries where you want to say to the filmmakers, this is a lovely story, it's too bad you got to it first? I feel like I've, I've seen that with both narrative and documentaries where it's like it's the same cost to hire a DP who knows what they're doing with that same you know, red or, or maybe Canon 5D camera. Uh, and with documentaries in particular, I feel like either there's this tendency to go full Instagram with it and maybe be in the same sort of hazy, artsy realm. Never go full Instagram. No. Or um, this case where they just shoot it as it is and what's meant to be sort of plain and naturalistic can just be kind of dull when it's especially a Talking Heads documentary. And uh, I feel like there's this, you get this wariness, whether or not it's, it's earned or not, of knowing that a doc is about an issue and worrying that the doc will not justify itself beyond just being about an important thing. I feel like that was very much the case with a doc called Fed Up that was here this year. Yeah. Because if there's anything I already know, it's that me and other Americans are obese. <laughs> so I feel like I don't need to sit there <laughs> for Did you apply night. the retina test? What's that? That's where you have eyes. That's right. my variation of a Bechdel test. So I feel like every year there's one or two docs that are just kind of 90 minutes of no-duh lectures that always seem to get in because they're on the grounds of being something ostensibly important and maybe actually important, but not necessarily cinematically compelling. Yeah, I, and that's the thing is that pressing record is not an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, as somebody said far more cynically than we ever would, oh, the audience award for documentary goes to a movie that makes you feel all the feels. Right. Well, arguably, that's how the Academy chooses their awards as well. 
Wow, well played, sir. And I thought I was going to be railing against the distraction industrial complex tonight. Uh, how hard is it to even have one sit-down meal at Sundance? Is it well-nigh impossible? It's tricky, and even then you probably don't feel good about yourself. Yeah. I mean, uh, carbs are the key to survival in cold weather environments. I, kn I know that from my youth in Canada. Absolutely. But, I mean, I mean, I, I, you and I certainly like, oh, it's time for a burger at the Yarrow. Right. It's time for a snick snack in the theater. It's time for a sack lunch you made at your condo. Right. So talking about food at Sundance is kind of fatuous. So let me ask you this. How's that bourbon treating you, William? Oh, it's uh, lovely. It's full of uh, minerals and uh, vegetables and everything a growing boy needs. You know there are no vegetables. Like, I mean, technically, is grain... No, they're at the bottom if you keep drinking. Right. We use frozen broccoli <laughs> as ice cubes. Um, more importantly, if there's one thing you would do to improve Sundance, what would it be? Move it out of Utah in January? <laughs> <laughs> That's... So, as a brief anecdote, I was taking a shortcut. I was like, oh, if you go across the parking lot to the right aid, you have some steps, and then you go across another parking lot, and you're at the Holiday Theater. The steps are outside, and they were covered in ice to a degree where it was just like a sort of bumpy slope. And I thought, over the handrail, I'll be fine. Grab handrail. Take one step. Fall completely on butt. Fall so that left shoe and right shoe are on different sides where a banister post goes into the ground strike that where you would think I would, then slowly rotate around until my head is downhill, at which point my phone falls out of my pocket and skitters across the ice, and I slide down slowly with my satchel disgor disgorging pens, notepad, gum, and other tools of the trade. And all I thought was, in our YouTube age, why wasn't that being filmed? Yes, I feel like uh, despite a remarkably pleasant and mild weather forecast. I uh, managed for the first time in three years to slip on ice and fall on my ass. And uh, the odd thing is that I saw the ice. I knew it was coming. And yet, like any good blogger, I shifted my laptop bag in front of me so it wasn't harmed, so that my livelihood, my, my back might have been uh, bruised, but my pride was, was not. I actually had that happen two years ago where I fell, and fortunately my laptop broke my fall. Mm. Not good. Not good. But, I mean, all kidding aside, I think also the e-weightless system this year was rather controversial. Previously, Sundance just had a thing of, hey, show up and wait and maybe you'll get a ticket. This year they had an e-weightless app. Right. And the app could be automated. The app would open up X number of hours before a film and there were people who were gaming the system. There were people who were in a movie precisely when the waitlist opened up. Right. So they either were those people on their phone or they waited until the film was over, like civilized human beings, and then lost their place in the wait list. Uh, did you hear people having problems with the wait list, Will? Uh, yes, and I didn't experience it for myself. The one time I attempted to get into a film that already had an e-wait list, it was clearly a lost cause to stand in the old-fashioned standby line. But it seemed that people were happy to not be spending hours missing other movies, waiting in line to maybe get into films. At the same time, you have that problem where if you're going to an 8.30 movie, you have to be up at 6.30 to attempt to get in place in line. And then conversely, if you are in a film two hours before any given film, then chances are you're probably distracting your neighbor by trying to get in line. And possibly invoking stentorian rage from one of us. It's what we're good at, James. Uh, I, the thing is that I was talking to somebody from Sundance, and they were like, so what's your feedback on the e-wait list? And I said, traditionally, I think Sundance ticketing line should reward the crazy more than the crafty. 
you know I, it's uh, you know the the movie church people who are willing to be out there right. early should deserve you know uh, a better anyone who's lo- willing to lose their toe for a duplass deserves to be well there. no but I mean I think that you know the, be- the test of your love of cinema shouldn't just be if you get 3g or 4g right you know I I, I, I just feel like Sundance, you know, brings to mind what Winston Churchill said of democracy. It's the worst system of uh, governance or film festivaling possible, except for all of the others. But I really hope Sundance looks at the e-wait list and, you know, says, you know, this is fast. Is it fair? Well, may Lord Redford smile favorably upon us next year. And may the odds be ever in your favor, Uh Also, did you saw that whole thing where Mitt Romney was flying back with Zach Braff and Indeed. And said, maybe odds be ever in your favor. Yes, it's the second worst thing Zach Rack released this week. <laughs> Sorry, the second whitest thing, maybe. <laughs> and at that precise point, you've done it, sir. Thank you. Uh, it's very much been our pleasure this week on the Lunch Podcast to have with our guest, William Goss. You can find William on Twitter, at William B. Goss. William is a contributor to Film.com, as well as the U.S. iPad edition of the U.K.'s Empire magazine, and also The Dissolve, your home for terrific film coverage. William, thank you very kindly for joining us on the lunch. Thank you for the bourbon, James. Not at all, sir. More importantly, to all of our listeners out there in podcast land, until next week, go to the movies, have a meal afterwards with your friends. A real meal. That's very true. Talk about it. It's a good thing.